0: When a child is diagnosed with a serious, life-threatening illness, the entire family is affected. These stories from those families, especially when faced with challenging decisions, will move and inspire you. The parents are courageous and resilient in their determination to keep their family strong. Courageous Parents Network promotes their insights so that others may also find hope and strength. Welcome to the Courageous Parents Network podcast series. In this episode, CPN's Blythe Lord talks with Michelle Moon, a bereaved mom and adult neurologist, about her decision to pursue fellowship in hospice and palliative medicine. What about her experience with her daughter, Juliana, led to this career pivot? And how is it feeling for her as she nears the end of her fellowship and considers her future as a doctor while always honoring Juliana's life and legacy?
1: I am really glad to be here with you, Michelle Moon. You are a adult neurologist and I think more importantly, the mother of two children, Alex, your son, and your daughter, Juliana, who you're going to tell us about. Courageous Parents Network did a video interview with you a few years ago when we talked in great detail about your journey with Juliana. We are here picking it up again as a audio interview to talk about what you've been doing since which is i believe to be exceptional and interesting and full of meaning for you and i think for a lot of others and certainly i have been learning a lot from you as you and i have stayed in touch and you've been talking to me about what this journey has been in the subsequent years since we've spoke and your time pursuing your fellowship so thank you for being here thank you for those who haven't seen your videos If you could tell us about Juliana and what you would have people know about her life.
2: Juliana had a very bad neuromuscular disease called Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease. This is usually not a bad disease, but in hers, she got a very severe form. She ended up having respiratory issues and feeding issues. And to make a long story short, she died almost five years ago when she was five years old. From the time she was about three, We were in and out of the hospital with respiratory infections, and she just got worse and worse. During her last hospitalization, we were introduced to palliative care. We were offered a palliative care consult. And at the time, I didn't really know what it was. Like a lot of people, I thought we were getting it because we were at end of life, and they just wanted to see if we wanted hospice. But luckily, I said yes, and it changed everything. We were hospice eligible by the time palliative care was introduced to us, and we did end up going on hospice. When we went in, we didn't know she was going to survive that winter, but she ended up surviving two winters. We had 18 months, and they were beautiful. And I know that the focus on her comfort and quality of life made the difference. After she died, I went back to work right away. At the time, it was good for me. I I needed something to focus on. Everything changes after something like that happens. And certainly the way I practice medicine changed. I am a neurologist. I needed to spend more time with my patients. I wanted to talk about things that were important to them, help them make hard decisions. And so I just thought I would just be a better neurologist. I found I couldn't do that. It's really tough in most medical practices to take the time and to practice medicine like that. And so I decided to do a hospice palliative medicine fellowship. Three years after she died, I I made that decision, and now I'm doing it. So I'm almost done, actually.
1: Can you describe the awakening to realize that you couldn't continue to practice Neurology the way you wanted to, and therefore, the mm-hmm. way you could practice the type of medicine you wanted to was to do hospice and palliative medicine.
2: One of the big things is the amount of time you're able to spend with people. I was in a practice where it's 100% productivity, meaning you bill for each encounter, and we were able to choose how long we made our encounter, so I did make mine longer. I really did want to spend time with people. But the neurological patients that we see, I mean, they have things like dementia, they have Parkinson's disease, and even in a 45-minute new visit, which is kind of long by some standards, that's not a lot of time to get the diagnosis, give that diagnosis, and then just be there for them. The pressure of just feeling like I had to see a certain number of patients and not having the time. When you're talking about these kind of things, I mean, it takes them a lot of time to process sometimes in the office. I mean, of course, they can't process everything in the office, but they need time. And, you know, I didn't like the feeling of having to kind of move on to the next patient. I also found that I didn't have the language to have some of these conversations, it felt awkward sometimes, like I didn't know what to say. That's part of it too. I wanted
1: formal training. What I was thinking as you were talking was that it wasn't just that you wanted more time, it's that you wanted to be having a different sort of conversation. The types of things you wanted to be talking about wasn't, was, was different because of what you'd been through with Juliana. It-
2: It was. It was. I'll I'll give you an example. Many of my patients actually with advanced Parkinson's disease, there comes a point where the medicines don't work anymore. So you can't really tweak them. You can't add anything, but they're having a lot of problems. Like they're losing the ability to walk. They're falling and they have to call 911 to get them up. Their caregiver is exhausted. They're having all these things that really need help. I found that I, I didn't have anything to offer them. You know, I could listen to them, but I didn't know what to do. And I think part of, of course, having a palliative team is having a social worker, having more resources for people. I just felt like I, as an individual, couldn't provide.
1: How much would you say of your decision to make this career pivot also had to do with Juliana's memory, Juliana's life?
2: Yeah, it had everything to do with it. Your life has to mean something. I think there's a lot of ways to make it matter. You know, I happen to be a doctor. And so you were the one who told me actually that, Michelle, you can get this done in a year. (laughs)
1: And you're right. It's just a year. I am glad I said something that was helpful. I'm certainly thrilled for you. I'm thrilled for patient families that they're going to benefit from you. And I'm also Happy for you because when we first met in person that time at the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine's conference, we talked about this need you felt to do something more as a doctor, but also as Juliana's mom. I've recognized so much of my own history and how you were talking about it. I believed so completely in what was possible for you. The fact that you've gone in this direction is, to me, an evidence of just the power of love and hope and faith and courage. I think your decision shows a lot of courage. It also shows how supportive your husband is and your son, yeah, Alex. Definitely. Michelle, how has that shift been for you? It's one thing to have the inspiration and the ambition to do it. It's another Mm -hmm. thing to be doing it. What Mm -hmm. has this year been like for you?
2: It's been the most fulfilling of my career, really. It doesn't feel like work a lot of the time. I kept on hearing, like, if you know you're doing the right thing, if it doesn't feel like work, you know, the hours aren't crazy doing neurology training. It's a whole different system. The hours are very different. So I think in general, palliative training is not, you know, you're not usually working like 80 hours a week or anything like that. The work is hard because it's emotional. You're walking with patients through really, really tough things. And so that's hard, but it's really, really fulfilling. It really is.
1: Have you been reminded of moments of your time with Juliana as you've been working intentionally as a hospice and palliative medicine doctor?
2: I haven't done my pediatrics yet. I haven't had that experience, but I think I relate to family members in some ways so much because I was a family member going through it. A lot of what we do is we have to get the whole story. We have to figure out not so much the diagnosis, it's how they got the diagnosis, what's going on in their life, and that kind of thing. And so I think I just have a greater appreciation for really imagining what this is like for a family who's going through an illness, and that's definitely because we went through it. I have more of an appreciation of what caregivers have to do at home. It really, really is 24-7, and you don't get that unless you've done it. All the details, the overwhelming appointments, and managing all the medications, I lived that for a while. So... I think I empathize with them in a way that I wasn't able to before.
1: Do you talk about Juliana with your colleagues? When did you start sharing your story with your fellow fellows? One of the things people ask
2: is, why are you doing this? Why did you decide to do this now? And so I can't really answer that without talking about Juliana. I've shared my story in so many different ways. Sometimes that can just be like casual conversation, right? And so sometimes it does feel strange to say it. It's kind of like dropping a bomb sometimes, but it's just true. It is what it is. They found out early just because, because we talked about how we do this. In terms of patients, in very select encounters, I will talk about Juliana. It's usually when someone else has lost a child. But I'm careful about that because when I'm with them, it's for them. It's not me. How does it come up? One of the things I'm learning this year is like you see these families in these really, really difficult situations. They have a bad diagnosis or you know their husband's dying or something like that. And then you talk to them and you realize that they've been through so much more, like they may have lost a child together. I had someone the other day where we were having a a goals of care conversation and talking about, you know, would he want to be on a ventilator if he couldn't breathe, that kind of thing. And it turns out like his son had been on life support and his son asked to be taken off. There's
1: a lot that people go through. These things come up. I remember when I was being trained to facilitate a grief support group for parents of children who had died, it was a fairly rigorous training put on by a wonderful group of people. They said before you can work with people who are experiencing grief and loss, you have to acknowledge all of your own grief, all of your own losses and really look at them and hold them and think about them and make sure you have processed them to a place where you can be with other people's grief and loss and not have it trigger your own. That is
2: so true. I had to do that too. I went back to work really quickly after Juliana died and I needed it at the time, but about three to six months in, which is I hear from a lot of parents that it gets harder. It did get harder and I needed to take time off and it was hard to do. I finally ended up taking an FMLA leave of absence for three months and that's when I really did what they call the grief work. I don't think I could do this without without having gone through that. What was that grief work? Part of it was not hiding with work, not hiding behind work. For me, that was the path the least resistance, going back to work and just working hard is what I was doing, what I've done for a long time. So part of it was taking that break and that was hard. That was really hard. The other part was doing a lot of therapy. I started seeing a therapist. I think just going through going through the pain, which I thought I had like so many times before, but it's different. It's different after they actually die. It was a lot of staying home. I think I painted a lot of rooms. I journaled a lot. I cried a lot. I did a lot of therapy. For me, I needed to take that time off of work because I would have never done those those things if had I just been doing my my usual going through that also kind of solidified my feeling, my conviction that something had to change. And I think that's one of the things also that pushed me to make the break from work and do this fellowship.
1: The way I experienced it myself, and it sounds like you have your own version of this. I felt like I had a seed. Well, sometimes it's a seed and sometimes it's an egg, different analogies, but I felt like there was a seed inside of me and it was growing. And as long as I paid attention and took care and was doing the grief work and not turning away from thinking about it, and my husband, Charlie, was really instrumental in making sure we were talking about these things. But as long as I was doing that, it would keep growing. I just had faith, or I had to have faith. I was like, I'll believe it when I see it, because who knew what was coming? But I felt like something Mm -hmm. wanted to happen, that the seed would turn into what it needed to be. Hearing you talk about your family medical leave time and doing that work, to me, is like you watering the seed or sitting on the egg, nurturing whatever needed to happen. And at the end of that time was your decision to pursue the fellowship. I think
2: so. And it's funny because when you were talking about a seed and egg, I'm thinking fire. Like I feel like Mm -hmm. it's a fire. And I think it's maybe because I'm more impatient. Using that analogy, like taking that time off, I think the fire was out of control. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It wasn't helpful. It needs to be
1: controlled. Say more about that. Why a fire? And if the fire analogy is still apt now, Mm -hmm. what type of fire is it?
2: guess it depends on the day. I guess I see it as fire because I feel like it, it's there. It's already there. And so something has to be done right now. That's the trick. You know something has to be done. You don't even know quite what it is. You have some ideas, but then it's not done now. And so it frustrates you. And then you, then you start to wonder, like, you know, am I doing enough? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? I think that's what I mean when I say it's out of control. Ideally, it's contained and it's
1: tended to. I also want to acknowledge that It is only five years now since Juliana died, and my seed and egg analogy was happening, I think, 10 years after Cameron died. It was not a contained, calm seed or egg Mm -hmm. at year five. I don't even remember what year five Mm -hmm. felt like, I have to tell you. I was definitely poking around doing things on the side that felt meaningful. Mm -hmm. My sense of urgency that you and I have talked about, our shared sense of urgency Mm -hmm. that we do something wasn't yet a sense of urgency Mm -hmm. at year five. Maybe it was like year nine that I had this Mm -hmm. panic that I was about Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. mess it up. And Mm -hmm. panic and Mm -hmm. urgency are flip sides of the same coin, right? How are you thinking about it now, this direction you're moving in? I do think I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, I feel
2: like I'm supposed to be doing this work. I don't quite know what form it's going to look like, where I'll practice, where I'll be geographically, that kind of thing. I do, I guess, feel lucky in that I have that kind of global sense or knowledge that I'm on the right path. What I have to watch is, you know, I care so much and I want so much. It's, I guess, not being disappointed don't happen really quickly. For example, one of the big things that I've cared a lot about since Julian was pediatric palliative care, the whole thing, people knowing about it, there being more of it, people talking about it, just, you know, families feeling supported, everything. And it's not fast enough for me.
1: (laughs) I know. It's not fast enough for me either. But I remember I went to a talk from a group of people that were starting the Massachusetts Coalition for Serious Illness. It was all about advancing Hospice and palliative medicine in the state and doing advanced care planning. It was started by a coalition led by Dr. Atul Gawande, Ellen Goodman, and mm-hmm. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts Foundation. They brought up, as a, one of the speakers, somebody to talk about how long significant change takes, mm-hmm. how long meaningful change takes. I think the number that stick has stayed in my head is 40 years. The examples they gave was drunk driving laws, smoking Mm -hmm. laws, drinking and alcohol laws, how long that took. It calmed me a little bit because Mm -hmm. it reminded me that what mattered to me was much bigger than what mattered to me. It's something that consists of hundreds and thousands of people. Then human beings take a long time or rather systems take a long time. Yep. Yep. And that was helpful, but again, I was hearing this like 12 years later, not five years. I also remember having a conversation with Dr. Diane Meyer, who started the Center of Advanced Palliative Care. She's like, I've been at this for a really long time, Mm -hmm. and this takes a really long time. That was helpful to hear. Mm -hmm. Michelle, as part of getting your fellowship as a hospice and palliative medicine doctor, you've been advocating for pediatric palliative care and telling Juliana's story and doing things that are specific to pediatric palliative care. Can you describe Mm -hmm. some of what that's been, what you've done?
2: One thing we had to do is either a quality improvement project or an educational project, and we could pick anything we want. I think one of the things that most programs can use a whole lot more of is exposure to pediatrics. The requirement, and these are adult HPM fellowships, it's two weeks of pediatrics, two weeks. <laughs> Everyone knows that's, you know, that's practically nothing. And yet when you look at kind of the objectives or the goals that AHPM wants us to know about pediatrics, it's like everything. Most programs across the country are not affiliated with a children's hospital that has a robust palliative care program. And so it's an area that is lacking. And so I came with the idea of just improving the pediatric education experience. My first idea was to do a talk to my fellowship and then maybe it could get recorded and it could stay and maybe other people could listen to it, but it kind of evolved because I think there were too many things I wanted to cover. And, you know, for one talk, you're supposed to make like two or three points or something like that. It evolved into this video series where I just kind of introduced a topic. I give my take on it, but then really most of the content is is from Courageous Parents Network because I do want it to be about the family experience. I wanted those voices.
1: I do believe that those videos are being very well received. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. They're fantastic. And I think to be sort of glib about it is like, don't just take my word for it. Look at what this mother and doctor and now trained hospice and palliative (laughs) medicine fellow or doctor says about it I mean you are you are a particularly unique combination Michelle
2: that's really funny because I I look at it as like don't take my word for it (laughs) listen to these parents
1: (laughs) I really do Your authority comes in the fact that you are both a parent who benefited, or you and your daughter and your family benefited from pediatric palliative care, and you're a doctor.
2: You know, it's just so ironic that I am a doctor that she had a neurological illness. I mean, so sometimes I look at it and think that something has to come out of this. Something has to come out of this. I may be the only one in the world that has this particular perspective, and so I guess that's why I wanted to make these videos.
1: Michelle, what has been hardest for you about the fellowship? Have there been things that have been particularly challenging? Again, I haven't done
2: my pediatric rotation yet, so I haven't had that experience of maybe meeting a family that hits too close to home. I think for me, actually, it's been practicing medicine in, in the time of COVID. This year, so you know, we've been in this a year now, so we are the first fellowship year that's had our entire year under these circumstances. The fact that we have to do so much over the phone that really shouldn't be done over the phone, that's been really hard for me. It's not a satisfying way to practice medicine at all. And I wonder what I'm missing where before you used to go into patient's room and there'd be a lot of family members there. And so part of the skill you have to learn is working the room, addressing the whole family in the room. And we simply don't have that now. That's been challenging.
1: What have you enjoyed the most? Just doing the
2: work. Looking at a patient's chart and finding out about them and then doing the encounter, focusing on the palliative stuff. You know, I'm not managing their cancer or their their electrolytes or that kind of thing. But I get to talk to them about stuff I really want to talk to them about. And I guess when I've had those encounters where I think I've really helped or the team has really helped, that's really, really satisfying.
1: So one of the things that you said about wanting to get better at that you didn't have the training for Mm -hmm. was communication and having yeah. difficult conversations. How do you teach that? How have they been teaching you that?
2: I mean, there is some formal talks where you have like, you know, spikes or like these mnemonics, like what you're supposed to do kind of in order. But I think the bulk of it is really, they, they just go with you. You go to these encounters together and as the fellow, you're the one who's leading it. And then the attending or someone else steps in when you get stuck. And then there's feedback afterwards. I think being a mid-career physician, there's obviously benefits to it because I've been talking to patients for a long time. But there are also disadvantages. Like I think one of the first things, and still one of the hardest things that I have to undo, is going for the code status first because that's our training. It's one of those things that when you when you admit someone in the ED or something like that, you have to get the code status because it's part of the order set. <laughs> and with palliative, if you're doing that right, that should be the last thing <laughs> or one of the last things you talk about. So that was one of my first, the, one of the th- first things that one of my attendings gave me feedback on was like doing the code status early. He said that it's the mark of a novice to ask about code status first. And that made a lot of sense to me um, when I thought about it, because I'm um, going back to our own experience with Juliana. The way I got asked code status was actually on a phone call in the parking lot before I went into work, and it was okay. And the reason it was okay is because it had been preceded by a long series of conversations and a big care conference where we talked about all that and I felt like, like we were all on the same page. And so when the ICU doctor called and asked, I didn't want to kill him. I mean it was <laughs> and if can you imagine if if they had done that without all that? Like they just called and I had to like talk about my daughter's code stats before I went to work. And so when he said that, that that just totally clicked. It's like you can ask about that after you've gotten to know them after you know what's important to them. Yeah. And you can't always do that. Sometimes you see a patient where you it needs to be decided really quickly. So you don't always have the luxury of time. I think you have that more in pediatrics, hopefully, because you're following patients for a, a longer time. But but yeah, that's the way it should be done.
1: The transactional piece at the end, it's really all about the relationship.
2: It is. And I think in medicine, we, we get we get caught up in paperwork, like like getting a code status, getting an advanced directive signed and that kind of thing. But even if you don't get that, I think having the conversation, knowing what's important to them and being able to document that in a note, that helps, yeah. that helps you know, future doctors when, when the patient comes in again, that, that kind of thing. And that's more important.
1: My impression is that getting trained in medicine, like a lot of other high intensity, high risk professions, there are checklists. Is there a checklist for palliative care? There are certain things you want to try to address
2: for every patient. You may not get it all in the beginning, but yeah, there are certain things you want to address, and so it is something. I mean, they tell you, and it's true. Let's go in there with an agenda. When you review the notes and and you know you talk to other people about the patients before you see the patient, you get an idea of like what's going on and what you think will help this family and what maybe needs to get done and so yeah that is that is in the back of your mind and you and you do plan it sometimes especially if it's one of those situations where decisions do have to be made pretty quickly
1: because you sit at the intersection of being a doctor and being a parent who's been through this what do you want pediatricians to know about the family experience and then I will ask you What would you want families to know about the pediatrician experience? Because that matters too.
2: Yeah, okay. So I guess what I would want pediatricians to know about families is that as hard as it looks, it's even worse than what you're imagining. That the little things really matter. Like when you have nothing left medically to offer, there can be a huge difference in the way you deliver that and the way it's perceived and received. You know, like many other families with a sick child, we saw multiple medical teams throughout Juliana's life. And there were definitely times where, you know, the specialist would be consulted and they didn't have anything medically to offer. And sometimes that's, that's all I got. Like, we can't do anything like that. And then you're left with that. And that's a very awful feeling. On the other hand, I've had other medical specialists where they too could not offer anything medically, but wait, sit with you. The way they, you can just tell that their heart goes out to you, they take time and it can just be a few more minutes. It feels very different. Even when you can't offer something medically, if you can just somehow find a way to let that family know that you still care that their child matters, it feels very different on the receiving end. So I think that's important. Parents have to know that you think they're doing a good job. That's really, really important. It's huge. I gave the example in actually one of the videos I made where during Juliana's the worst part of her illness, when when we kept on going in and out of the hospital, every time we had a hospitalization, we would have more stuff to do. Like we'd have you know a different treatment or a different something that was supposed to keep her out of the hospital next time. It made me feel better because it's like something else I could do and maybe it would work. And it didn't work. <laughs> and so then I would feel like you're doing something wrong, right? And so like I. Didn't do her treatment on time, or I didn't do enough minutes of this or that, and so that was a stage where I felt like the more I did, the more it meant that she would get better. Which, of course, that's not the way it works, but that's just how I was feeling at the time. And so when it didn't work, then you, you know it's easier to blame yourself than to face the fact that they're getting sicker. But it's also really hard on yourself when you blame yourself for stuff like that. During that last hospitalization, one of our doctors just said, I read in the chart, you know, her stats went down to the 60s while you're doing this treatment. We know how hard you're working. And those words, I mean, it was so profound, like how much better that made me feel. Like all of a sudden I felt like, oh, we're on the same side. Like they get, they get how hard it is. I mean, they don't get it because they're not there, but they acknowledge how hard it is. And that just, it changed so much. I try to do that now. When I see families who are struggling, the caregiver needs to know that they're doing a good job. So. I think probably that's the most important stuff I would have doctors know about patients.
1: What I love about that, Michelle, in addition to the fact that resonates Mm -hmm. as truth to me, is that that's language, that's communication, that's connecting, that's not learning Mm -hmm. a new fancy skill that's hard and requires 10,000 touches to get good at. That's just, in some ways, that's just kindness. Right. Yeah. We, we can yeah, do people that. People don't have to be
2: taught that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This kind of training, this palliative training on end of life and how to be there for families. I think it's changing, but it, when I was training, it was definitely not part of the curriculum. So I know it sounds awful and it shouldn't be that way. And I'll speak for myself. Like, you know, I didn't have formal training in that kind of thing when I was doing neurology. And even when I was doing pediatric neurology, cause we have to do some pediatric neurology and training. I didn't necessarily have the example of people who had that training either. I mean, I I didn't. And so I think part of it, there is a, a lack of training. And I do think that's getting a little bit better because I know that they're introducing that in curriculum more at the medical student level now. But the culture is not what many of us would hope it is. I think that's changing. The way we have to practice medicine now, and we, you know, this is in the news, like the way doctors have to practice medicine, there's huge rates of burnout, less job satisfaction. And I, and I feel bad even talking about that to families who are in situation when their child is really, really sick, because it's much harder being on that end for sure. But doctors are really, really stretched and it is hard to practice. The system is just not set up so you can practice that medicine that I ended up wanting to practice. There's a lot of forces and just regulations and just things that, that make it hard to
1: practice in a way that is always patient-centered, I guess. What you say is so helpful, Michelle, because, you know, we, we talk at Courageous Parents Network about how what matters so much is feeling the medical team, whether it's one person or three are willing and able to mm-hmm. stay in the room with you and hold the space with you mm-hmm. and be present for you and the stories that you hear of parents where they feel sort of mildly traumatized is when they feel like yes there wasn't that willingness to stay or be or or Absolutely. be or connect that the empathy was not present in that moment and i think mm-hmm. what i hear you saying is that it's because it's a lack of training.
2: I have memories of
1: training where
2: I know I was involved in situations where it was not a good experience for the patient. And, you know, sometimes it was something I didn't say or do. Sometimes it was because, you know, I was a resident and, you know, this is what the attending, <laughs> it was their language, you know? So, and I think if you talk to most doctors, we all have that. We have those experiences where we know it
1: was an awful experience for the patient and it's horrible. Yeah. And that's really sad, but it's true. And I imagine that just as a family doesn't forget a conversation that didn't go well, a doctor doesn't forget a conversation that didn't go well either. I think you're an extraordinary person, Michelle. And one of the greatest blessings of this work for me personally has been to come to know parents, the incredible, courageous parents that make up the network that are out in the world that are doing this work and then you in my opinion have been particularly striking in your willingness to talk about it to be vulnerable to push forward and to strive in a way that is very specific to pediatric palliative care I have really appreciated your desire to you know ask me questions because I'm just further ahead on this grief, grief train than you. And that friendship that you and I have has been very, very helpful to me because while one could say I'm helping you more, obviously, just because I'm ahead of you, you have helped me just as much because the parent in me sees the parent in you and it takes me back in ways that are good and important. I just do deeply value our relationship.
2: I wish I were not in this situation, to be quite honest. But I think that the people you meet, it's really remarkable. I guess that's part of why we're remarkable, going through what we went through. So we Mm -hmm. can't have it both ways.
1: Coming up on the five-year anniversary of when Mm -hmm. Juliana died, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. That is a milestone if you decide to make it a milestone. Oh, it is a milestone. Okay. How are you feeling about that?
2: Weird, because sometime within this year, we're going to get to the time, we're going to get to the point where I've been without her longer than I was with her because she died before she was six. I'm not a counter of days. I don't remember a lot of anniversaries and birthdays and that kind of thing, but, you know, I remember, I mean, those days when she died and then her birthday, are they're like,
1: they're sacred. And so I have to do something to mark them. And you get to a place... I think what will happen, Michelle, because of all the work you're doing and how you're thinking about it, that you will look back on the years following Juliana's death, and it will all make sense to you. Not, not her illness or her death, mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. years and the road that you've traveled. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to feel very proud of yourself.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I don't think about it that way quite, but I think that, I think she would approve of what I'm doing and that's kind of how I see it yeah.
0: Yeah. thank you thank you for listening for more stories and conversations as well as videos, downloadable guides and decision making resources in English and Spanish visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family